What do you think about the color brown? Brown is a beautiful color. It's a very rare color to find when you go shopping. Have you noticed that? I have. I, I don't know that I have. Well, when you go shopping, I want you to tell me if you see a lot of brown pants, a lot of brown shirts, a lot of suits that are brown. It's a very difficult color. It's hard to combine. Yo, my pops is one of a kind. His name is William Rivas, and no, he is not a stylist, although his fashion tips are classic and legendary. And the belt has to match the shoes. It's very rare for you to find brown slacks. Look for it. Abigail, send somebody from uh, Stitchers to go look for brown pants. <laughs> Sorry, Pops, but my producers don't have time for those kinds of errands. And unfortunately, this podcast is not about my dad. But don't worry, you will still hear from him here and there. That is for sure. This show is, however, about brown. Being brown. This podcast was born out of the feeling of not feeling enough as a brown man in a white black world. I don't necessarily speak the best Spanish or look the most Dominican or the most Colombian, whatever that means. I'm just me. And yet I felt like I didn't know where I fit in. I was always trying to be something else for someone else, especially as an actor in Hollywood. And that's until I started to take back my own experiences and my own stories. I even made a podcast about the person who inspired me to do all this. His name is Porfirio Rubirosa, and he is, no lie y'all, the real James Bond. It is true, but he's Dominican. You gotta check out my first podcast all about his life and his struggle to fit in. Just scroll up right now in this very podcast feed and look for Rubirosa. I'll be here when you get back. Start with episode one. Through learning about Ruby, I learned a lot about myself. And I realized I'm not alone. There are so many incredible, amazing brown changemakers out here, figuring out how to navigate this world, how to take up space and own their self-worth, how to let go of the white gaze. And so I created this space for all of us, a place to discuss what our experiences are like. And today I have got a real treat for y'all, a legend, someone who knows what it means to break barriers. Well, my name is Maria Hinojosa. And I'm a journalist in the United States trying to shake things up continuously and also have a lot of good, a lot of good fun and laugh. Maria is no rookie. She has decades-long career as a TV and radio journalist. She just won a Pulitzer Prize, y'all, for her podcast called Suave, a show about Maria's relationship with a man incarcerated as a teen. In 2020, she published her memoir, Once I Was You. And this year, she adapted the book for young readers. Maria has fought tirelessly to tell stories about her people, our people, for her entire career. And she is still doing the work. She had to prove over and over that her brownness is enough. Today, we'll talk about how her parents' experience in the U.S. shaped how she thinks about this country and what she hopes for the next generation of brown journalists. My name is Christopher Rivas, and this is Brown Enough, stories between black and white. Here we go, y'all. love a classic chocolate chip cookie. Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact, with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. It's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie, and fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, 
in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Maria has reported for the biggest media outlets in the U.S. We're talking CNN, NPR, PBS. And in 2010, she founded an independent nonprofit newsroom and production company called Futuro Media. There, she became the executive producer of Latino USA. It is one of the longest-running national Latinx news programs in the country. They cover everything from music to Latin American history and, of course, immigration. People are always like, oh, God, Maria, man, you just love to report on immigration so much because you're a Mexican immigrant. Oh, my God, you're so Mexican-y. Why are you wrong with, oh, why are you always reporting about immigrants? And, and I'm like, oh, you think I'm obsessed with immigrants and refugees? No, 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 no. I'm obsessed with the capacity of this country's inhumanity towards people who simply were not born in this country. And that includes me. That's what I'm obsessed with. Maria has met children who've been taken away from their relatives and caged in detention centers by the U.S. government. Her Mexican heritage has impacted how she reports on immigration. So I was not born in this country. I was born in Mexico. I'm a proud Mexican. Uh, well, I'm not a citizen because when I chose to become a citizen of the United States, I had to give up my Mexican citizenship. At that time, there was no dual citizenship. And so for me, my journalism is like, pues orale cabrones, ahora I'm an American citizen. <laughs> okay, now you all have to, like, I'm going to make sure that you, you live up to everything that you told me that you were going to be this country that I just chose to be a citizen of. Um, and so I, I, I really think it has a lot to do with me choosing to become an American citizen and, and therefore feeling this extraordinary weight to challenge this country, to not let it get away with, oh, we're the best, you know, American exceptionalism. And then it, for me as a journalist, my my godfather, the one who I always turn to is Frederick Douglass. There was a quote that I'm in a mangle of Frederick Douglass's, which is basically like, it's only because you love this country so much that you're going to criticize it so much. And that's how I feel. I'm like, bro, I love this country, but yeah, my job is to criticize. Maria is the youngest of four children. She grew up in the vibrant neighborhood of Hyde Park, Chicago, where her father was hired to work at the University of Chicago. Maria spent summers in Mexico with her extended family. Crossing the border between the U.S. and Mexico became a regular part of her life. For most of my life, from the time that I was like six or seven, we were driving from Chicago to Mexico every year, all six of us in the green station wagon. And um, that was a part of my life. I would literally get to the border between Texas and Mexico, and it was like, okay, goodbye, United States. Okay, ahora solamente vamos a hablar español. La radio es en español. La música es mexicana. 
and I would become my Mexican self. When we would cross back, I do, and as I wrote in the young reader's version of my memoir, Once I Was You, there was a lot of fear. Even though it was not a very scary place, it was not militarized the way it is now, the border, but I always did feel a little bit like, oh, and a lot of mixed emotions. I was leaving Mexico behind, but I was coming back to the country that I knew well, the United States. Uh, Always some trepidation because the border patrol uh, was always around. There were agents. We were, you know, we were six Mexicans driving home in a loaded station wagon. So we would get sent to secondary inspection a bit. And I did not like that. And as a result, did not like the border patrol. But, you know, a lot of my life and the stories revolve around this, you know, being a border crosser, whether it was Mexico, U.S., or whether it was, you know, Chicago moving south, crossing all of the state's borders. But the thing that really uh, kind of changed this whole relationship that I have with the borders when I, in the process of writing the adult version of Once I Was You, and I had to come to terms with, um, you know, the Donald Trump zero tolerance family separation policy and my mom calling me in, in the midst of that in tears and revealing to me, like, look, when we came to this country and we flew in, the immigration agent tried to take you. So you were almost one of those babies who was taken from their parents. And I was almost one of those moms. Upon arriving at an immigration checkpoint in Texas in 1962, baby Maria was about to be taken into quarantine because an agent saw she had a rash. But Maria's mother did not let this happen. She raised her voice at the tall, blonde Texan agent and told him that he would not take her baby away. And he didn't. When Maria's mother told her this story as an adult, Maria couldn't believe how powerful her mother was. She understood her rights as an American before she even had citizenship. In her book... Maria describes her mother as a feminist chingona badass. And when my mom kind of came to this revelation in her 80s, that's when, as we say in Mexican Spanish, me cayó el quinto. And I understood exactly why I am the journalist that I am, that, that I really felt like, holy shit, like that trauma of almost being taken by an immigration agent on, upon your arrival for the first time to this country left an indelible profound imprint on me, and that's why I I do the kind of journalism that I do. Maria's father was another person she looked up to. He was a scientist, recruited by the University of Chicago. He moved to the U.S. before Maria and her family in the 1950s, smack dab in the middle of the civil rights movement. There's an incredible story you share about your father during the 1950s before he gets hired by the University of Chicago. This story reminded me about my own pops, uh, who chose to identify as white on his driver's license. Can you please share the story about your dad choosing which bathroom to use? Wow. So your dad choosing white um, as a Dominican man is so layered because I'm married to a Dominican man. So I understand that, right? With the erasure in the Dominican Republic of anything that is black. And in my father's case, as a brown Mexican when he finds himself in the U.S. for the first time in Texas by bus coming north to Chicago, to the University of Chicago, and they stop at the bus stop. And, you know, Mexico saw the United States as an advanced, industrialized, modern country. And so it's the 1950s, and my dad gets off the bus to go to the bathroom, 
And it's and I'm sure he was probably like, no, pues va a estar muy sucio, no, pues, I mean, you know, it's going to be dirty. Like, that was probably the thing he was thinking about. And instead, he's faced with, you know, colored versus white. And he was like, ¿qué es esto? Colored or white. And he, he looked at his skin. He's like, well, I'm definitely not white, but I'm I'm not black. And so... I'm going to choose the privilege, right? And I'm going to err on this side of this. And I think this is the complex conversation about Latinos and Latinas, right? Is our our proximity to whiteness, our ability to choose it if we, like in my father's case. But I think this marked my dad because he felt like, one, I think he felt kind of shafted by the United States. Like, you guys portray yourselves as so advanced and yet you're doing this kind of ridiculous bullshit. I also think my dad thought, well, if they have a, bathroom door for white people and one for colored people, will there soon be one for Mexicans? You know, and we're kind of not not far-fetched. Um, and then I think my father felt like he kind of, mm, like he got under, he got by, like he squeezed in, like he wasn't his full self, right? Because his full self would have been, well, I'm not white. So I always feel like that he felt like a part of him was being erased. Um, in this country, and that he, it gave my dad an element of distrust about the United States. And you know what? I'm really thankful that it did, because I think my dad passed down to me, como que ese, esa cosa como que, bueno, sí, pero los gringos, y hay que, you know, y, you know, there was always a little bit of, bueno, sí, pero, and I'm glad because that makes me a better journalist. Again, happy to be a, an American citizen, as my father was, but also, glad that he did not kind of believe, you know, hook, line, and sinker. He was just like, I'm going to demand certain things from this country too. And and it should be better. There should not, never have been a segregation at that level in this country. And yet it is a core part of this country's identity. Still is. And still is, right? Hard to answer. Still want to ask it. What do you think you would have done in your pops' shoes? Oh, in that moment? Yeah. Uh, I probably would have done the same thing. Because I think that we have to remember the amount of fear that now already was clear. That if you were black, you were um, a target. You were, um, you could be targeted. You were targeted. And so I think that I would have probably said, well, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to be targeted. I don't want to be attacked. Um, and so you're right. It's kind of like it's it's the privilege of being able to say, and so I can choose to do this. Um, and again, I think this is, this is like the next level of conversation, not the next level, because people like you and me, we've been having this conversation for a while. But for the rest of the country, it's like, oh, you think Latinos are just like this one thing? And like, you know, they eat tacos and they speak Spanish and they dance. Okay. You know, it's like, you have no idea how complex these communities are, our, you know, our different nationalities, what we bring with us, the politics of it, our cultural divisions, our race. But most of American mainstream media, you're not going to hear the conversation of how complex Latinos and Latinas are. You are an activist. You talk about activism a lot in your book. You got to go to like civil rights protests with your family in the 60s. What did you see happening at these protests? Can you paint a picture for me? You know, they were kind of very similar to the civil rights protests happening in, over the last two years here in, 
in, in our country now after the horrible murder of George Floyd. May he rest in peace, but but no reason for him to be resting. He should be with us. That would be justice. But, oh, you know, the ones that I went to, they were small. They were in our community. They were, you know, five blocks from my grammar school. They were uh, families with a um, poster board. You know, it was for education and equality in education. And they were very joyful. It was a sense of community. It was, oh my God, if we all chant together, whoa, that sense chills up and down my spine. Whoa, this is, and you know, I wasn't a citizen then. My whole family, only my dad was a citizen. And so it was a sense of like, we can be a part of this country even though we can't vote. And that's always been, you know, I became a democracy junkie, I think in part because of that. And I'd love to call myself a democracy junkie. And um, it is about understanding that democracy exists in multiple forms. It is not just going to the ballot box. It is in everything that we do. We deberíamos, uh, you know, inspire and aspire and and inhale and exhale democracy. I think journalists can be activists. I don't think all journalists are activists you know, as an inspiration to many journalists. What are your thoughts on activism and journalism? You have called me an activist, and I'm like, hmm. And the reason why I take pause is because I was once an activist in college, um, and right before I started my career, I was an activist. I would go to political meetings. I was a massive note-taker. I had ridiculous amounts of schedules, strategies, and I know what it takes to be an activist. It takes a hell of a lot. So if you say I'm an activist in journalism, then I would say, well, I'm an activist for the truth. Um, I'm actually an activist for representation, for equity, right? Um, but as a journalist per se, you know, part of what I've had to do and always do and pride myself on doing is speaking with people who don't look like me, sound like me, or think like me and finding a way to talk with them. In, in that sense, I'm an activist for my profession. I want us to do better journalism. I, I'm, I'm sick of this both sidesism of like, you know, the pros and cons of cannibalism. Or in the case of Donald Trump, the pros and cons of staging an attempted coup. It's like, shut the fuck up. No, 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 no. And so in that sense, I want a journalism that is much more aware of our role as, as protecting our democracy, as understanding the use of propaganda and authoritarianism and anti-democratic um, eh, tactics that are used by politicians. So that does sound kind of activisty. Like as I'm hearing myself, I'm like, God, Maria, you're sounding. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but but then you see, you I I'm getting really. <clears throat> alterada about about my profession and again my my mentor is Frederick Douglass and he was a journalist of conscience so I want journalists of conscience to be journalists that are leading um, in this country and we're not there yet um, but I, I would say I'm an activist for the truth and for my profession 
Y'all, we need more journalists like Maria out here. Those who are seeking the truth and sharing underrepresented stories. The tragic killing of George Floyd in 2020 made it apparent that newsrooms across the U.S. need to be more diverse, more black and brown voices, but very little has been done. Take, for example, the Associated Press. 76% of their full-time news reporters in the U.S. are white. 8% are Latino, 7% are black, and 6% are Asian. And their news management is 81% white. The decision makers, y'all. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Maria tells us one of her favorite fashion choices for being on camera. Stick around. Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. Our patented bedding includes everything you need, a fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Bettys.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S.com. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. And we are back with Maria Hinojosa. Before winning a Pulitzer Prize and becoming the EP of the longest-running Latinx media organization, Maria was in the busy streets of New York reporting for CNN. Here's a clip of her wearing a winter jacket, a white vest, and some glittering hoop earrings on a snowy day. All right, well, so here we have it. That is the statue of Mahatma Gandhi taking the snow quite peacefully, actually, even though... uh a little bit chilly here in New York. There has been snow falling. What is your relationship to hoops, or do they have any significance other than the fact that you just like them? So earrings have always been a thing for me. I think that's the thing. Big earrings have always been a very big deal for me. Um, but then as I got older, you know, it was harder for me to wear very big earrings because my my lobes kind of grew a little bit. So um, hoops just make it super easy. I see them as a representation of everything Latina to me, whether it is the Afro-Cubanas, um, you know, and, and I'm part Cuban in, in, in my legacy, or whether it is eh, las indígenas que siempre tienen su oro, of which I am also a descendant. Um, I Hoops in the 1960s were like a very big deal. Angela Davis wore hoops. Um, so they are a they are a political statement, and also I think that they're just 
super easy, clean, and um, and they do make a statement. Um, and, and like I said, easy. I like easy. Way before the journalism and the Pulitzer, I read that you wanted to be an actress. <laughs> what, what made you think about becoming an actress? Was there a movie that influenced you? <laughs> oh, God. Well, um, well you, you read about this. Yes, it's true. I did get inspired by Natalie Wood playing a Latina, and I was like, her name is Maria. And, oh, my God, I saw West Side Story. I think I, you know, I did start doing theater when I was eight years old. Um, I did come to New York after watching Zoot Suit on Broadway, the first Latino, <laughs> Latina play um, on Broadway. It closed, as you know, famously, maybe two or three weeks later. It was terrible. It was a great play, but um, New York wasn't ready. And I I was like, I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to go to college, but I'm going to audition on the side. And and then a director kind of killed my spirit. He was just like, you know, it's you're, you gave a good audition, but I don't really know. It's like, you know, you're not really Latina enough. You're not white enough. You're not tall enough. You're not short enough. You're not street enough. You're not sophisticated enough. I'm not exactly sure, you know, how you where you're going to fit in this business. I gave him my power and I let him pop that bubble and I fell into all of my insecurities. But, you know, the good news is, is, of course, I became a journalist and there's a lot of things that you learn in acting that are good for journalism. Um, you know, ha having to be different personas in different moments, be very powerful, even though you're not feeling that way. Uh, but I, I haven't given up totally on my dream of being an actor. Oh, there's still time. <laughs> well, I mean, you saw in the Heights, right? Yeah. So that was me who was the protest leader. Whoa, stop, really? I don't think I'm that amazing. <laughs> You'll go back now and you'll amazing. be like, oh we my God. Put, yeah, I'm like, the thing is, it is down. that, you know, usually <laughs> when I'm on television, you know, they, back then when we would go to do television and go in the studio and have hair and makeup, you know, I'd look very, you know, my hair would be all done and all. When I, for my role in Hollywood, you know, I went to hair and makeup and I was like, ooh, they're totally going to do me up. They did nothing. They're like, no, we don't. <laughs> Here's some lipstick. I was like, uh, can I get some concealer? They were like, okay. There was very little makeup on purpose because I was an act. I was playing the role of Juana, the activist. Um, I started the one. I was the one who was leading the chant, tell our stories, um, under the direction of John M. Chu, who directed In the Heights, which I believe should have won multiple Oscars. Don't get me started, y'all. I had to go back and rewatch In the Heights to see Maria seen as Juana, and there she was, surrounded by the crowd of protesters. Watch out, Hollywood. Maria Hinojosa is coming to a theater near you. Uh, you all, you've mentioned a lot, Frederick Douglass. What other journalists made like a big first impression on you? Or did you ever see a journalist growing up that you were like, that's, that's who I'm trying to be? There were no women journalists in the United States for me to look up to as a little girl. Um, in the writing of both the, the memoir and then the young reader's version of Once I Was You, I had a revelation which was really beautiful. It was actually Mexican women who were journalists on the radio and on television. They were the ones who kind of inspired me. I don't remember their names. But the first journalist that I remember just being like, whoa, um, Ed Bradley. This is the east coast of Malaysia. 
final destination, thousands of refugees fleeing Vietnam. A black correspondent for CBS News. Uh, He was on the ground in Vietnam, and he was a black man, and he was a journalist, and he was so suave and smart. And please forgive me when I say this, but yes, I was very impressed by seeing Geraldo Rivera. (laughs) Uh, This is back when Geraldo was actually a great investigative journalist. If you have never watched the Willow Book reporting that he did uncovering abuse at mental health um, facilities in New York. It's been more than six years since Robert Kennedy walked out of one of the wards here at Willowbrook and told newsmen of the horror he'd seen inside. That was his claim to fame. He did great journalism at that point. And I remember just like Geraldo Rivera. You are a leader, whether you identified it or not. And I will say that just because you were the first Latina correspondent on NPR. Uh, You were the first Latino correspondent on CNN. And until the lucky few stop winning millions, Americans will continue playing the game. Maria Hinojosa, CNN, New York. What's it feel like to be a first? You know, when when I first wrote the book, Chris, la gente me preguntaban, and so what was it like to be in that newsroom, (laughs) you know, when you first got your job as the first Latina at NPR? And I was like... Girl, I was thankful I had a job. It was a recession. (laughs) So the first thing that came to mind was like, I'm just thankful I got a job. Um, To me, the, the sense of being a first means total responsibility. It means, wow, this privilege. Osa, you worked really hard to get to this point, but you have had ridiculous amounts of privilege to help you get to this point. And now that you're in, you have a deep responsibility to use your voice, and to um, afflict, right, the people in power, uh, including my bosses, my editors, to afflict them, to always be just like kind of not prepared to take it sitting down. Um, And I felt like that was part of my responsibility. Um, It was scary. I had a great, have a great husband, a Dominican man who is like, tú dale gas, Cómete el miedo. No dejes que te diga nada. Ellos no importan. You know, just like, that white man isn't going to mean a thing to you in five years. You know, just keep doing, you know, like, so I, it took a lot from me, you know, doing therapy, talking about imposter syndrome, worried that I was never good enough. Um, but I'm 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 happy to be that person who was the first because I... I, I know that I brought a tremendous sense of responsibility. And I mean, okay, you keep on saying you're a leader. I'm like, okay. But, you know, I don't, I, I hope that I'm a leader in the sense that I'm always trying to be like, but I'm just like you. Like, don't, that's why whenever people introduce me and they're like, oh my God, and she won this award and that award. And I'm like, stop. Because ultimately I'm just, I mean, I'm just like you. Maybe that's why I love the title of the book, Once I Was You. Because in many ways I try to see myself in the person most unlike me at all times. You have been in our community and in our lives and representing Latinos for so long. Was there ever a moment where it became too much pressure, where it was like, oh, I have to, I ha- now I have to do this. Now I'm the, you know, was the, I'm sure there was a joy at some point. Did the joy ever leave and it became pressure? Like, I, you know, I'm the first in this, I'm the first in this, I have to keep going. Well, I mean, I did feel like I had to prove 
myself at every turn for the first two decades of my career. Tight. So I got a while. <laughs> oh, for sure. Um, you know, and, and then I create my own company and I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, zero idea and just had kind of a hope and people who believed in it. Um, I feel a tremendous historical responsibility. The pressure that I feel is like in a morning, on a morning like today, I had a rough night a little bit. I mean, I could sleep, but there were, you know, I'll wake up and I'll be like, how is this person in prison? Or, you know, is this person going to make it across the border? Or is this person being abused? Like all of the people who I know, the the souls who I'm reporting about. And it does sometimes just feel like, oh my God, this is too much. This This is just too much. And then it's like, see, and you wake up and it's about just chipping away. I love that term, chipping away, just a little by little, chipping away, doing everything that you can. And so I don't see this as pressure. I see this as, I mean, it is pressure and it is a lot. <laughs> That's why I have need for release, which is why I go boxing, et cetera. But hmm. I, don't fe- I don't take the pressure and feel horrified by it and just feel like, oh my God, you know, maybe I did in the past, but now I'm like, no, I understand this pressure. Um, there are not many of us, and I include you, Gris, in the conversation of Latinos and Latinas and Latinx and Latine who are um, deeply involved in the conversation about our future, identity, our power, our politics. Um, and so yeah, we, we don't have a choice. We, we have to do this and we have to do it with joy and gusto. Your memoir exists for a youth audience. What are you hoping the youth gets away from reading your book? Like, what's the what's the major differences between that audience and the older audience? So when my agent, Adriana Dominguez, said, look, I think you might want to think about doing a young adult book. And I was like, why? <laughs> like, no. No, I don't write for kids. Why would you even suggest that? Are you crazy? Um, and she said, well, it's a very competitive market many, many books are sold. Uh, and I was like, huh, that's interesting. And then coupled that with the data about the median age of Latinos and Latinas in the United States right now, which is 11. Hence why I wrote a book aimed at, you know, 10-year-olds, basically. Because this is where I feel the responsibility? Oh, hell yes. And I'm like, oh my God, I hope this book is read by thousands upon thousands upon thousands of kids of all backgrounds. Um, because I want them to understand a little bit of history and their role in it and how to see their own power. Um, So I've really understood how important it is that we are talking to younger people. And I was always that journalist who was talking to like kids in high school. That was some of my earliest award-winning reporting was talking to kids, non-white kids. It was like people didn't do that. And, um, and, and so it's not a surprise now that I'm talking to even younger kids, right? Because we need to get them before they're in high school. We need to get them to understand their power and place in this country before high school. I am hoping that it feels kid it makes kids feel like they belong and that they have a voice and that they are visible and seen. And in particular, you know, uh, the beginning of the book, I write about kids who were taken from their parents. And I want them 
to read this book and to know that they belong uh, in this country, that, that we love them and want them here. What are your hopes for the new generation of brown journalists? Oh my God, I love that question. I, I hope that they do the work to understand the kind of responsibility that they have in the work that they do. And I say this as seriously as I say this to you, Chris, as an, as an artist and as a storyteller and arts activist, right, is that we need them to own their full selves and understand that this is the best thing that they can do for American journalism is to be their full selves um, in the newsrooms where they are, that they need to eat their fear, as my Dominican husband, comete ese miedo, tú te tienes que comer el miedo. I need them to eat their fear so that they can become the newsroom leaders that we need them to be. Um, we Latinos and Latinas, uh, particularly in the field of journalism, I've found some of our highest talent is sometimes still um, overwhelmed by their own insecurities. And that's not surprising to me. Uh, and we need to have Latinos and Latinas on prime time. Um, and we need to be leading news divisions, leading investigative units. So I'm all about eat your fear because we need them to be journalists of conscience in this country. Comete ese miedo. Eat your fear, y'all. I'm not a journalist, but I know what it feels like to be in the position of being scared to take a leap. Being scared to take action, to make change, especially when I'm trying to make it out here in Hollywood or as a brown man in a white world. I know it's hard, y'all, but we got to take risks and fight our battles, whether it's in the newsroom, the conference room, a studio, or at home. Maria, I cannot wait to see you in Hollywood. Hey, there might be a chance we bump into each other on a set. In the meantime, you can check out Maria's book, Once I Was You, available for adults and young adults. And please, rate and review this podcast, y'all. Don't forget to share it with your friends, cousins, primas, primos, tios, tias, uncles, and aunts. Tell everyone, y'all, peace and love. Brown Enough is a production of Stitcher. It's created and hosted by me, Christopher Rivas, and I'm also an executive producer. Our team includes producer Manolo Morales, senior producer Abigail Keel, technical director Casey Holford, production assistant Gabrielle Gladney, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Original music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Brendan Burns. Carlos E. Hernandez of Ikigai Management is also an executive producer of Brown Enough. And don't forget to subscribe, y'all, or follow Brown Enough so you never miss an episode. Next time on Brown Enough. Have you been reading anything? About your book? I haven't even gotten a book. No. It's on Amazon. <laughs> no, not about my book. Just in general. Have you read anything else in the world that's, that, that's interesting? We're talking about books and the publishing industry with my very own publisher, y'all, Row House. You won't want to miss it. Witness Docs from Stitcher. Tired of fighting your kids to make their bed? Say hello to Betty's. The unique design lets your kids make their bed with just a zip. 
Our patented bedding includes everything you need. A fitted sheet, top sheet, and comforter in one seamless piece that zips together. Kids love the feeling of accomplishment when they can make their bed by themselves every day. Make your mornings easier and visit Bettys.com. That's B-E-D-D-Y-S dot com. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.